Well, it's good to see everybody. Happy Mother's Day for all you moms out there. And, and I, I do want to say that, um, you know, Mother's Day, I, I mentioned this Thursday night, it's always bittersweet, isn't it? Um, because there's those who have lost mothers, those who have never been able to be mothers, uh, those who maybe are estranged from their moms, or if you're a mom, you're estranged from your kids. Or uh, So I understand that, and, and we do say Happy Mother's Day because God's design was for motherhood to be a wonderful thing. He had told Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and sin has made a mess of it, hasn't it? And so for those of you, if, if, if today is a hard day, I get that. And um, the Lord knows. Your Father in heaven knows, and He cares about you, and He loves you. And um, may you find your comfort and your peace uh, in Him and everything He's given you in Jesus. So Ephesians chapter 1, this is um, a new series, and we're just continuing on this theme of the sufficiency of Christ that we've been looking at um, in uh, our Thursday night study, and you can see that I summarized the um, sermon, the, the Glory of Christ in the Community of Faith, that is the whole book of Ephesians, that's the series, is gonna, we're going to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church, the community of faith. And I have a couple desires for this series. One is that you would just, again, see everything that you are in Christ. And, and, and the lens is going to switch a little bit from 1 John and Galatians to see everything that the Father has planned and purposed for us in Christ. And so we're going to get the opportunity to talk about God's sovereign grace in election and predestination, and we see it right here in chapter 1. But I also want you to see that the glory of Christ is on display in our lives as a church when we, as Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of our calling, keeping in step with the Spirit, that this is a matter of us being a witness to Benicia in our community, that Christ is on display as we walk in a way that displays his glory in the most fundamental parts of our relationships. Paul's going to talk about marriage and family and the household and the church and being a witness in the world and that we're to walk in unity and in love and in holiness and in wisdom and even in victory because he ends with spiritual warfare. And he says that we need to put on the armor of God so that we could stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And so Ephesians is a dear book to me. It's, it's one of my favorite to preach. I've even had the opportunity to teach a class at Cornerstone Seminary. And so I'm going to start a little slow. We're just going to take this three weeks to go through these first 14 verses, a little slower than I normally do. And I thought about covering it in one week. There's a nice Trinitarian shape to it, which I love. So you have the Father's elective purposes in verses 1 to 6, and the Son's redeeming mission in verses 7 to 10, and then the Spirit's assuring seal of our salvation in 11 to 14. And that's a pretty good outline. That preaches well. But we're going to take one a week. So those become the sermon titles to let us know where we're going. And before I jump in, you know, I was reminded recently that the nighttime is some of the hardest times in the Christian life. 
You have that where in seasons of your life you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go to sleep? Or perhaps you can't even go to sleep to begin with. Insomnia sets in and it's, it's not because you're not tired. It's because your mind won't stop. Doubts, fears. Perhaps it's a change in um, medical conditions and the fears are overwhelming and running through your mind. Uh, perhaps it's the wonderings of why, Lord? Why do you have me right here in life where I'm at? Why, why do I feel stuck? Why do I feel like, like I'm spinning my wheels and there's no hope for the future? And so then nights become sleepless and anxiety and fear, and it almost feels like spiritual warfare in the middle of the night. You been there? Or am I alone in this? Because I feel like this is something that happens to me quite a bit. These feelings maybe of, of man, did I waste my life? Is, am I insignificant? Like, it, did I make any difference at all whatsoever? This life is such a vapor. Is it, is it unknown and pointless? Um, what we're going to see in this book is that God has a purpose and a plan for us in Christ that is glorious and should give us great hope. That even if by the world's standards our lives are insignificant, we're not a big influencer. In the kingdom of God, we're laying up treasure in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy, where thieves won't break in and steal. That this is what Jesus told us the kingdom of heaven was like. His kingdom is like. And so I want to encourage your hearts today with just a few things here from the first six verses of Ephesians. And uh, turn the slide I had hoped you had done that already. I was being a little too subtle. The big outline is what I just talked through, so I'll be a little more specific. The glory of Christ in the community of faith, it's seen in what God has purposed and planned for us in Christ, the first three chapters. The last three chapters, it's on display as we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. This is what Paul very often does in his books. It's the indicatives of who we are in Christ and the imperatives of, so then how do we live? And I've talked about this over and over that in Galatians we saw it. If we were to go to Colossians, the first two chapters are the indicatives. The second two are the imperatives. If we go to Romans, it's like 11 chapters of indicatives with some imperatives. But then you really get to the application in chapter 12. And the reason this is so important is because when we're in chapters 4 to 6, if we don't root it in everything God has done in Christ in chapters 1 to 3, we miss the motive. And it could be heavy burdens. It could be legalism. It could be... Man, there's a whole lot of things we have to do, and it could be solo bootstrapa. Pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and live the Christian life. And so, in the book of Ephesians, we're going to keep doing this back and forth. We're going we're to be in chapters 1 through 3, and we're going to run to chapters 4 through 6 for the application. And then when we're in chapters 4 through 6, we're going to run back to chapters 1 through 3 for the foundation. To motive. Why do we do this? And we're going to see that we have a wonderful motive because our Father in heaven loves us. And He's a perfect Father in heaven. And He's demonstrated His love by giving us His best, His Son. And not only that, He gave us His best in His Spirit to not leave us as orphans. And Paul deals with this in the first 14 verses. So let's go ahead and read these 14 verses together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What an introduction. This is a masterpiece of literature. This is the aesthetic, the beauty of this one sentence in the Greek. It's one sentence from verses 3 to 14. When you take Greek at Cornerstone, you end up having to diagram this one sentence and see the whole structure. The, the writing of this is elegant and it's dense. The, the, the amount of theology and doctrine that's in this is, it's about as thick as it gets. You want to go to the loftiest ideas in Scripture that's revealed, you have some of it right here in Ephesians 1. But I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to think that just because it's dense and it's deep and it's beautiful and elegant that it is not one of the most important things you need to know today for when you wake up tomorrow because what you see in this sentence is that your father in heaven loves you and he's demonstrated it by giving his son and pouring out his spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance that your father in heaven child of God wants you to be with him forever and he's guaranteed it by his son and by his spirit this is why it's so important you ever been rejected you ever been unwanted unloved unneeded surplus to requirements you ever been let go from a job had a relationship ended? This verse, these, this sentence speaks to you in that and says, your Father wants you. He wants you. He loves you. This is a glorious passage, and I, I just want to simmer in this for the rest of the, the time that we have. In almost every verse of this paragraph, all the way down from verse 1 to verse 14, Paul speaks of the us as the people of God that have received this mighty salvation. It's as if the Father's saying, I chose you, I predestined you, you are mine no matter what. No matter what. 
But what about my sin? No matter what. That's why I sent my son to die for it. But what about my personality? A lot of people don't like me. I'm kind of a jerk. I love you and I want you to be a part of my family. God says he doesn't just love you, he likes you in Jesus. Now this is great encouragement and what Paul's going to do is, you know, if we were to read this, Paul meant for it to be read to the church in one sitting from chapter 1 to chapter 6. So I can't help but think about chapter 6 where he says to put on the armor of God to fight against spiritual foes. That that's tied to this reality that Paul is telling them, listen, when you put on the armor of God, what you're really putting on is everything that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you fight against spiritual foes, you need to know that the victory is won because your Father is for you and He's given you His Son and given you His Spirit and you're not alone. And oh, by the way, in chapter 2, His Son was seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, and in chapter 2, you've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ. In fact, Jesus was seated above all principalities and powers and authorities and rulers. So by the time you put on the armor of God, guess what? You're seated above them as well, and they're defeated foes. And so you don't have to fear. That's really good news for tomorrow. That's really good news this week. It's really good news for our marriages, for our parenting, for our relationships. They don't have to stay the same. They don't have to stay messed up and ruined. They can be renewed and transformed in Jesus. That is really good news. Well, here we have this blessing from the Father, verses 1 through 3. And the first thing we see is that we are blessed in union with Christ. So many times you see in Christ Jesus, in Him, in the Beloved One. And when He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's from a, a Greek word, eulageo, which means to a message of praise, a, a commendation. You heard of a eulogy at a funeral? It's the same word. The idea is you're giving a message of commendation and praise of someone's life. You're giving the eulogy of their life. Here, Paul says it's not a eulogy because God has died, but rather it's a message of praise and commendation for everything the Father has done in Jesus. Praise of our Father is the focus of the passage. And if you notice, he's not just blessing him as God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, which is true. And he's worthy to be praised for being God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He's blessing him as a father. Because he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's going to go down and say, guess what? We are children of God. He is our Father because we are in Christ. In fact, it's through God's beloved Son, verses 5 and 6, that we have gained access to the Father. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 18. <coughs> Listen to this. Through Him, that's Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So, so this is, the goal of our salvation is that we would have access to the Father. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, 
your fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You're a part of the house of God. You're part of the family of God. You now have access to the Father. Back in chapter 1, 12 times, verses 3 to 14, Paul refers to our union with Christ. Verse 4, the Father chose us in Christ. Verse 5, we've been predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, we've been blessed in the Beloved One, that is Jesus. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption. Verse 9, the Father has made known to us the mystery of His will that He set forth in Christ. Verse 10, the Father is uniting all things in Christ. Verse 11, in Him we've obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, we've hoped in Christ. Verse 13, in Him, in Jesus, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is Paul saying, listen, everything that you have from the Father is because you've been united to Jesus by faith. That's why you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's why we make much of Jesus. We need to take all of the person and work of Jesus and what it means that we're united to Him and apply it to our lives in the needs that we have. How is Jesus sufficient for this? How has He made a way to to overcome this and conquer this? How has He made a way to renew and transform this part of my life? And sometimes it's difficult and we need others to help us see it because we don't see it ourselves. That's why we need one another to be a priesthood of believers. But here Paul is just simply starting with a praise, a message of commendation, of, of praise to the Father for everything He's done in Jesus. He is Lord, and He's worthy of praise. And we would say, Amen. But guess what? Paul says, we also share in His honor and blessings because we're in Him. That's the thing that should blow your minds. 100% we would say, Jesus is Lord and worthy of all honor and praise. Hallelujah. But then we might go, wow, but I don't think... I should think about all of the honor and worth that I have because I'm in Jesus because I know what's wrong with me. But that's not what Scripture says. Paul is reminding them, you've been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. You have access to the Father. You have all of these benefits because you're in Jesus. It may seem like too much to receive, but it's not too much for the Father to give. This is your Father in heaven. I could get a little excited about this. I wrote a book about this. Now he goes on to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. And I kind of skipped over verses 1 and 2 because he's introducing himself, but he says the same thing there, doesn't he? I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, and I'm writing to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this is his main point. He doesn't want you to miss it. In fact, verses 9 and 10, the Father is summing up all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. So all of eternity is about Jesus. We've been blessed in Christ. And then he goes on to say, verse 3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And when he uses the word spiritual, he's referring to the divine origin or source of the blessings it it belongs to the holy spirit so he's he's bringing in the holy spirit here saying when you got united to jesus he's going to say it down later in verse 
11 to 14 that the Spirit was given as a down payment and pledge of your inheritance, but actually every blessing that you have comes from the Holy Spirit. And to be more careful and nuanced, we would say from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. That's why we're Trinitarian. It's a great name for a church, Trinity Church. That was a, no chuckles on that. <laughs> Verses 4 to 14, we just focused on the in Christ. Now look at what every spiritual blessing includes. And Paul doesn't mean for this list to be exhaustive, to be the complete list. He's just meaning it to be a sample. It includes, here's what you have, Christian, if you're in Jesus. You have election to holiness. You have adoption as God's sons and daughters. You have redemption. That means you've been bought out of the slave market of sin. And as Paul says in Colossians, you've been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, the one in whom we have redemption. You have forgiveness of your sins. You have a knowledge of God's gracious plan to sum up all things in Jesus. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have the hope of glory. This is everything that you have. Don't let anybody take this from you. This is what Satan is trying to rob you of. Week in and week out, he's trying to get your eyes off of Jesus and everything you have in Him and look to the world and say, that's a better Savior. That's going to make you happy. That's going to give you peace. That's going to give you joy. And what happens? It doesn't save. I mean, it might give you temporary peace and joy, but it doesn't deliver. It doesn't, it doesn't satisfy like Jesus does. Paul here is saying you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And then he says, in the heavenly realms in Christ. And here he's not just talking about heaven in the future like these benefits are just a future hope. No, he's talking about Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. So these blessings are a present reality because they're in Jesus. You have them right now today. What is Jesus doing right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realm, exercising the greatest authority and interceding for you and I as a high priest. That's what we saw in 1 John. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is our Savior, and it's in Christ. So we don't have to worry that there will be no place for us or that God won't receive us because He's already united us to Jesus and He's already included us in His purposes. That is incredible news. On to verse 4. It's according to the pleasure of His will. Pleasure, when it says it's according to the pleasure or purpose of His will, this word for purpose or pleasure in verse 4, it's the word eudikia. It, it means the delight that God takes in His plans. It has a warm, a personal meaning. It, it draws attention to the Father's willingness and joy to do good in your life. This good pleasure, and it's according to the good pleasure of His will. That is that what He purposed, what He intends, His active resolve, His redemptive purpose. Think about this. The Father motivated by His love and working out of His happiness, His good pleasure, has planned everything that has or will happen down to the smallest detail. That was dense. But what 
we're getting at is that everything that's going on in your life right now, the Father has worked out the smallest detail. Any suffering that you're going through has first passed through His loving hands. And that means that He is determined for your good and His glory that you need to suffer that. He's not asleep at the wheel. He hasn't abdicated. He's not paying more attention to some other church outside of California, wherever all those people move to. That's not what He's doing. He's determined that what would be best for you at this moment is that you suffer so that you would be more like His Son, so that it would wean you from the love of this world and it would cause you to cling to Him. Well, back to verse 4, what does it say He's done according to the good purpose of His will? The first thing is He's chosen us for holiness. Verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Now, God is worthy of praise simply because He chose us in Christ. And that choice was made in eternity past before time and creation. And we see this over and over in Scripture. For example, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, we know, brothers, loved by God, He's chosen you. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28, God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak to shame the strong. He chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I heard a funny story of my pastor, Steve Fernandez, over at the seminary. I, I wasn't in this class, but it's a great story. He was talking about election, and he was talking about the, <clears throat> the attraction of Jesus and that how when the Father uh, chooses us and the Son comes and dies for us and the Spirit draws us to the Son and makes Him beautiful to us, so where Steve would always say, He used to be a curse word, and now He's beautiful. He was using this example to these seminary students, and he said, you know, the gospel and the glory of Jesus is like a bug light. And you all are like a bunch of weird-looking bugs. And he was talking about this passage. God chose the foolish, the things that are low and despised. You're like those weird bugs nobody even has a name for that come flying out of the dark toward that bug light. And I thought, of course Steve did that. That's like disrespectful and just like... But all the students, this guy was saying, were like, Amen! Amen, brother, we're bugs. We're weird bugs in the kingdom of God. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Of course, uh, Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified this unbroken golden chain of salvation. From eternity past to eternity future, this is what the Father has planned. Because God's choice is before the foundation of the world, think about this. It's not dependent on circumstances in time, and it's not dependent upon human merit. It's rooted in the depths of His gracious nature. And it's not arbitrary at all. In fact, the, the Greek word here is in the middle voice in the Greek, which is a fancy term, but what it means is it's personal interest in the one chosen. 
It's not just picking names out of a hat. The Father set His affection upon you, Christian, in eternity past and chose you. And He chose you so that you would be holy and blameless before Him or in His presence. This fulfills God's original design. You remember what He told Adam and Eve? Go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He was, his presence was with them and they were blameless before Him. They were unashamed. They were without sin and everything was very good. And so what Paul is here saying is he's saying there's a reversal of the curse in Jesus. Now He's chosen you and you are holy and blameless in His presence. More on that later. John Stott in his commentary said when He chose us, we must have been unholy and blameworthy and deserving of judgment rather than adoption because he says the purpose of his choosing is so that we would become holy and blameless before him. Now this doesn't destroy human choices. Some people teach it this way. We could choose and make choices, but we always chose the wrong choice. But when we were made alive in Christ, we received a new nature, so now we made the right choice. We not only were able to choose Christ, we wanted Him. He's beautiful to us. It goes to the core issue of how broken mankind is because of the fall. Paul gets into it in chapter 2. In fact, turn over there, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. What a contrast. He says in chapter 1, you're sons of God. But the world, they have sons of disobedience. Characterized by it. And you were dead, but among them, verse 3, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. But you got to love the next verse. You can't stop at verse 3. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You remember that day? You remember that time in your life? When your eyes were opened and you saw the beauty of Jesus and you were made alive? Wasn't it a glorious day? We just celebrated some baptisms. Celebrating that reality. This is good news. This is the, the news we have for our community. It goes to the, not only the core issues of how broken mankind is, but that there is a solution in Jesus. In Jesus, God removes our blame and our guilt and our shame. Think about the Apostle Paul who wrote this. He persecuted and killed Christians. He was a terrorist. He never got over that. You can see it in his writings. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And here he's saying, the Father chose us to be holy and blameless before Him in His presence. Paul must have been thinking, I don't even know how I could be. I killed His church. And yet this is what God has done. Here's the application. In Christ, if you're in Jesus, the Father no longer blames us for those things that shame us. You hear what I said? 
in Jesus, the Father no longer blames us for those things that shame us. I know that's really hard to believe. Because if we were to take a, this projector and do a loop of my life and the things that shame me, I would run out of this building and never come back. But it's under the blood of Christ and it's forgiven. And the Father says, I no longer see that. I see the righteousness of my Son. I see the perfections of my Son. Holy and blameless, standing in His presence. That should give us a motive to obey Him, shouldn't it? I mean, He's going to get to that in chapters 4 to 6, that this idea that we're in Jesus and we're, we're already declared saints gives us the and it's due to the father's love it gives us the greatest motive for obedience if you're not a christian this afternoon and you're wondering if you're chosen listen to the words of jesus john 6 37 all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me i will never cast out do you hear that the Father chose a people and all that the Father gives His Son will come to Him. But if you come to Jesus, He'll never cast you out. You don't have to worry if you're elect. You come to Jesus. And you believe that He died for your sins. Jesus will never cast you out. That's the offer of the Gospel. That's the good news. You can come. You can come to Christ and He will never cast you out few more thoughts about election god's unconditional election it eliminates pride he chose he predestined he freely gave it's to the praise of his glorious grace if it wasn't this way we would have a cause for boasting wouldn't we look what i did i chose god no he chose me first he changed my heart by the spirit Election also gives us an assurance of salvation because if it were dependent upon us, we might be saved one moment and lost the next. Election gives us a motive to holiness because right here they go hand in hand together. He chose us that we would be holy and blameless. And it promotes evangelism because the Father chooses who will be saved and effectually calls them by the Spirit. We have a hope that our ministry will be fruitful. Christ's sheep are in this community. And they're going to hear the shepherd's voice and they're going to follow him. And our job is not to convince them, not to give the, the greatest arguments that it's not resting upon our shoulders. We're simply called to scatter the seed of the gospel, to water the seed of the gospel. God's the one who causes the growth. Well, he doesn't stop there. Verse 5, back in Ephesians chapter 1, we're also predestined for adoption. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. And notice the motive is in love. It might be at the end of your verse 4. There were no verse breaks in the Greek and whatever, whatever medieval scribe did this got it wrong. Uh, in love He predestined us to adoption. It tells us the motive of the Father. His predestining, and, and the word praharizo, predestined, is to plan out the steps to get to something. I remember the illustration that, that Frank Griffith used to always use was he, he had taken a dancing class with his wife Judy and they had put steps on the floor to learn how to do the dance moves. 
it's like dance, dance, revolution, I guess. You know, they tell you right, left, forward, backward. But Frank said, you learn these steps, and the steps are planned out in advance, and they're on the floor, and you just step in them, you just walk in them. That this predestining of our path to conversion, to salvation, to adoption as children of God, God planned out the path ahead of time that you would make it and you would get there. And that should give you great hope for your loved ones who are not yet saved. That God has a path and a purpose and sometimes it's through deep waters. Sometimes it's through great sin. But God saves and God delivers and it's, it's rooted in His love. In love He predestines. Turn over to Romans 8. I want you to see this. Romans 8, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. So Paul's talking about the same situation that he's talking about in Ephesians 1. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. You've been united to Jesus. Who's going to condemn God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge? No one. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Jump down to verse 38. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from what? The love of the Father. In Christ Jesus our Lord. You see what he's saying there? Your Father in heaven has loved you and is proven in Jesus and nothing can separate you from the Father's love. We always have to root election and predestination in the motive of the Father's love. If we divorce it from that, then it becomes a cruel doctrine by which God seems arbitrary. And it's pulling names out of a hat and questioning the character of God. But he says he's predestined us back in Ephesians 1 to adoption. Adoption, more than citizens, more than servants, though we're called both of those things, we're more than friends, even though we're called friends of God. We are children, sons and daughters of God in His kingdom. And adoption is the perfect antidote to a works-based salvation. And if we really understand the truth of the Father's adoption, we're freed from trying to earn His forgiveness and approval. See, if we think of it like human fathers, we might think, yeah, i got to earn His forgiveness and approval because human fathers do that to their kids. Human fathers tell their kids, you need to earn my love. Some do. Bad ones. But we're more like the Father in heaven when our children sin and rebel and make mistakes and we say oh yeah there's consequences for those mistakes but because of who you are to me you're my son you're my daughter i love you i'm committed to you i'll be there for you yeah you may have to suffer consequences but i'm there for you our father in heaven is a perfect father in heaven who says basically that his elect are his beloved ones his elect are his children he chose them therefore he loves them because we're united to jesus and adopted by the father 
we have all of the rights and privileges and affection that Jesus himself receives from the Father. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? Now, listen to Brian Chappell in his commentary. Predestination was never meant to be a doctrinal club used to batter people into acknowledgments of God's sovereignty. Uh, i got to knock that out of my seminary students. Predestination is not a club for you to argue God's sovereignty. Rather, this is what it's meant to teach you. Brian Chappell is so wise here. The message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting our failures is meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security in God's love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, and shame. You hear that? I'll read it again. The message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting our failures was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security in God's love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, and shame. Well, all of this finally is to the praise of His glorious grace. Back to Ephesians 1, verse 6. God's intention is that His sovereign grace would redound to His own glory. Verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. So grace flows from the Father's character. Notice here the emphasis is on God's grace rather than His glory. Look at the sentence carefully. He says, it's to the praise of the glory of His grace. Or to the praise of His glorious grace. So it could be translated, the word glory is the adjective and grace is the object. Now, if we said that election and predestination is to the praise of his glory we would say amen but that's not what paul is getting at here grace is a key theme of the book of ephesians and the difference between the father's love and his grace is that the word grace emphasizes the free and sovereign character of the father's love and choices it's emphasizing the father's goodwill it reflects his character Therefore, it is glorious because His character is glorious and it's worthy of our praise. And he ends the sentence by saying, this grace, if you want to understand what it looks like, it was freely bestowed in the Beloved One, His Son. If you want to get a glimpse, this Father's grace is given only through Christ. In the Beloved One, Jesus, God has poured out His grace upon us. It's freely given. He says it's freely given in the beloved. Have you ever felt like your father in heaven's a bit stingy? Maybe that's what your prayer life feels like. You pray and you ask and it's like, you know, again, we're thinking earthly fathers. It's like me with my kids at the video games at the pizza shop, right? I've got eight quarters. I'll give you one at a time. You come to me, I'll give you one at a time so you don't waste them all on that stupid claw machine. You know, and if you spend too many of them too quickly, I'm going to hold off so that, you know, the whole hour we're here, you won't bother me. Because that might really be the Father's motive. I want to sit here and talk to my friend, and I don't want you just blowing your quarters in five minutes and then sitting here pestering me for more. Right? We have all sorts of motives. And sometimes we think our Father in Heaven is that way. 
No, this grace is freely given. The abundance of God's gift of salvation, His generous attitude, He says, you want to see what it looks like? It looks like me giving you my best, my son, when you were at your worst, dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what it looks like. And the beloved one, of course, is Jesus, the supreme object of His love. Now, in the letter to the Ephesians, and we'll just close with this, Paul, in this first three chapters, he prays two different prayers for the Ephesian church. And, and I'm going to preach on these soon, so I just want to touch on the ideas. But in both of the prayers, they really bounce off of these first 14 verses as a foundation, and Paul just takes off. In fact, the first one is here in chapter 1. In the first prayer, Paul wants the Ephesians to know, verse 18, the hope to which the Father has called them. In fact, let's read it together. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened that you will know what is the hope of His, the Father's calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? So Paul's praying for the Ephesians and he says, I want you to know something. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to see something true about the Father. The hope to which He's called you, that you are His inheritance, verse 19. We'll deal with that tricky thing when we get there. In verse 19, Paul's not talking about that we get an inheritance in heaven. That's true. He talks about it earlier in the chapter. What he's saying is that the Father sees you and I as His inheritance. That's why He's called us. He wants to receive us in Jesus as an inheritance to Himself. And so, the power that's at work in your life today, he's going to go on to say, is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection power. Not just any power. Not a secondhand power. Not a distracted kind of power that human fathers do. Right? Like, oh yeah, I'm watching TV. Yeah, maybe I'll fix your toy. I'm distracted at the moment because I'm watching TV. No, the Father is the most glorious display of His power at the resurrection. Paul says, I want your eyes, the eyes of your heart to be open to understand this reality. The Father is working in your life, resurrection power, right now. That's the first prayer. The second prayer in chapter 3 is one that I'm sure is very familiar to you. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 19. Well, let's uh, start uh, verse 16. That He would grant you, the Father, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now what's that love? The Father's love that you're rooted and grounded in the Father's love, that you would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you'd be filled up to all the fullness of God. That as you grow in the knowledge of the love of God the Father revealed in the love of Christ, this measureless love that you can't, it, you can't get to the depths or the height or the, the width or the breadth, that as you begin to understand how much your Father in heaven loves you in Jesus, by the Spirit, you would be filled with all the fullness of God Himself. That's incredible. This is what Paul is praying. 
So here's what he's saying. The Father wants you as children to know Him as a Father. To know who He is as a Father. To run to Him in your troubles. To not run from Him, but to run to Him. To ask Him for help. That you would find grace and mercy to help in your time of need. This is what the Father wants. To hope in Him. To give thanks to Him. To pray to Him. Chapter 2, verse 18 We have access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. We can draw near to Him and ask Him whatever we want. He's not going to kick us out. It's not an inconvenient time. There's never an inconvenient time. And the Father initiated all of this in eternity past, rooted in His love, so that we would be with Him for all eternity future as a part of His family. Hallelujah, what a glorious. It's to the praise of His glorious grace. Father, thank You for this time and this Word. We could sit and simmer in this all day. In fact, we're going to. You tell us in Ephesians that as the ages of eternity roll on one after another, You're going to continually reveal Your grace and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you drive this down deep into the hearts of my brothers and sisters? Whatever they're facing this week, whatever sin that remains, whatever temptations are ahead of them, whatever suffering they experience, would you drive it down into their hearts that you love them and you are for them and you're more committed to them than they would ever be to you? You chose them before the foundation of the world. And it was rooted in your love. And you planned out the path that they would become your children. Remind them of this. Remind them that you love them by the Spirit so that they would glory in you to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.